Hi, podcast listener. Welcome to Truth About Exits, a show dedicated to pulling back the curtain to reveal what it really takes to get deals closed. You'll hear directly from founders of companies who have raised capital, sold their companies, and even those who acquire other companies for growth. I'm your host, Corin Woodmass. I'm a dealmaker, advisor, and when I'm not closing deals, I love to talk to others about their deals and what it took to get them closed. And now you can listen into these conversations too. For all the show notes and more resources, go to truthaboutexits.com. And we're live. Today on Truth About Exits, I've invited Martin Higginson to join us on the call. We have a lot to cover. I first met Martin late last year in 2018 when he was with, as part of Digital Box, they were looking for acquisitions, which that company will be talking about shortly. But also before hitting record, Martin and I were talking about a little bit of his background, which we'll get into, which includes exiting multiple companies and also listing publicly multiple companies, which Digital Box was one of those. So we'll jump into that. Martin, thanks for jumping on the call. You're welcome. Good to speak to you, Corin. Okay. So Martin, when people ask you, what do you do? Being the little bit I know about you so far, how do you actually answer that question? God, well, that's a difficult question because I, I sort of have fingers in many pies and having been invested in sort of digital for probably the last, uh, what seems like, well, probably 30 odd years in one way, shape or form. I think it, the answer takes a little longer than people often expect. So currently, I'm chief exec of a business called Emotion, I-M-O-T-I-O-N, which is a virtual reality business. But before that, I was chief exec of a business called Digital Box, which was how we met. And whilst we now have a management team in place on that, I'm still actively involved as a non-exec director. Excellent. Okay. Yeah, it's pretty complicated, I guess, is how you answer that. (laughs) So let's maybe give the listeners a little bit of an overview of you as an entrepreneur and how you got started and then how you got into the public market side of things. And then we'll dig into Digital Box a little bit. Yeah, okay. Well, I'll, you know, my career as an entrepreneur started when I was working as a journalist, a motorcycle journalist, age probably 18, 19. And I managed to persuade my then boss that I'd just seen these new BMX bikes. So we managed to create a new title called BMX News, which was a weekly newspaper. Sadly, about 13 weeks later, I got hauled into my boss's office and told me that he was not only closing the magazine down or the newspaper down, but he was also closing my job down with it. I then went home that evening, persuaded my father to lend me some money, went back in the following morning, persuaded my boss to give me the title, and then launched it as my own weekly newspaper, doing everything from writing, taking the pictures, selling the adverts, delivering it to the newsstands, and then covering events at the weekend. We quickly came to the conclusion that a a weekly newspaper wasn't the right thing, and we changed it into a colour magazine after about sort of three months. And within a year, it had become Britain's biggest selling boys magazine. We were running it as a fortnightly publication, and then we launched a monthly, and we were selling probably somewhere in the region of about 600,000 copies every single month. So it became a sort of roaring success. And that led on to my first sort of sale of business. And I sold that business probably age 20 to a company called IPC Magazines, which was a large European publisher, and went to work for them as a publishing director on their youth group for about three years. So that was quite interesting. I then left, sort of quickly coming to the conclusion that I wasn't really suitable to be an employee and set up my own business again. 
I set up a number of magazines, got up to about 100 staff quite quickly over about 13, 14 magazines. But this was probably the, this was definitely the mid 80s. And I think interest rates were then running at about sort of 16, 17%. And we had a lot of advertisers that whilst on paper, we were making money in reality, they just weren't paying and we weren't making any cash. So I came up with two ideas. One was to launch a sort of pop one shot. It was a magazine that unfolded out to be a giant poster, which was the sort of first idea. And we did a thing called New Kids on the Block. And we created a poster magazine around those guys. And that became a roaring success. And at the same time, we were approached by a premium rate telephony company, an 0898 numbers in the UK and 1900 numbers in the US. And they approached us and said, look, we want to run a premium rate telephony line on the back of your magazine. If we can do that, we'll share revenues with you. Oh, wow. I just naively had no idea about these things and said, yes, that seems like a good idea. The interesting thing was that actually generated more money than the magazine. Wow. Considerably more money. And I think the lesson well, the lesson in selling my first business was to make sure that you get good advice. Because I think in that business, we probably definitely sold it too cheaply. I think the second advice that I learned out of you know doing the premium rate telephony lines was to just keep your eyes open and look at what's happening around you. Because in actually doing that and educating myself very quickly, we actually found ourselves in a business that we didn't even know anything about. And very quickly, we morphed our magazine business into a premium rate telephony business. We closed down the magazine. We went from sort of 112 staff to three staff overnight. We went from having a break-even business to a business that was generating in excess of a million pounds profit a year back in sort of the early 90s. So it was a real transformation of a business, but it really showed me that that just actually by keeping your eyes open and looking at different trends was how you're going to sort of survive as an entrepreneur. Yeah, absolutely. And then we sold that business to a company called Scottish Power, which was a big utility company that was doing a roll-up of telephony businesses. And then when I joined them in the late 90s, I was given the task of going and acquiring an internet service provider in the UK called Demon Internet. And we acquired that within months of me joining Scottish Power. And I ran that business as the MD of that business on sort of MD of Internet and Interactive for for Scottish Power, or what was called Scottish Telecom. And then it was listed in 2000. And this was my sort of first foray into actually listing a business. And we listed it in 2000 for just shy of £2 billion. And that really, again, keeping my eyes wide open, just educated me about the benefits and the accessibility of huge amounts of cash in the public markets. And I think if you get something that's on trend and is in a rising tide, then the amount of cash that is available is just mind-blowing. Okay, so can I just pause there for a minute? I want to dig into this topic just a little bit more. So... A number of people I've talked to recently, there's about 50-50 split of people either going public, looking to go public, or afraid of going public. (laughs) So with your experience now of multiple listings, and we'll get more into that in a minute, but can you just quickly, at a high level, explain the upside and downside of listing a business publicly? The public markets are good and bad. If you do well, they'll overcompensate you, and if you do badly, they will kick you like you've never been kicked before. So there's three things that you need to do in the public market, and that's meet, beat, and repeat. 
In other words, you've got to meet the targets that you set or the analysts set for your business. You've got to try and beat those. Not too much, but you've just got to over-exceed expectations. And then you've got to do all the same again next year. And if you do that, you'll have a roaring success. And that's easier said. In a growing business, that's hard. But the benefits of the public markets is if you catch the tide at the right time, it allows you to still be in control of your business whilst actually allowing you access to capital, A, to grow it, and access to capital to take some money off the table. So it can be a really nice environment. But as I said, the downside of that is, you know, it will be ruthless in terms of if you make a mistake, then it will hit you like an express train. Wow. Okay, I want to dig into a couple of those points. So number one, maintaining control. So that is typically an entrepreneur's worst nightmare is losing control of their business. So how do you maintain control of your business after you're listed in public? Well, you know, it depends on how much you own of it. So let's just assume that you own 100% of the business. Then you can, you know, you, you normally look for about a 25% free float. So you can still own, you know, 50, 60% of the business and it be listed. But also, you know, I think as, as entrepreneurs, we become obsessed with this word control. And I think, you know, you can still run your business. I mean, a good friend of mine that I advised, he listed a business called Boohoo about two or three years ago. And it's now just shy of worth three billion market cap. And he's now gone from being a reasonably wealthy guy to being a billionaire in his own right. And, you know, I think it's one of been one of the best things he's ever done because he's still in control of his business. He and his family, whilst only owning probably 20% of the business, they're still very much in control and the markets back them. But what it has helped him to do is take a few hundred million pounds off the table. So therefore securing himself and his family's wealth sort of, you know, forever, really. Just some walking around money. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Everything in life is relative, I think. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. So what's the, forgive me if this is a little bit basic, but I get asked this quite a lot. So I'm going to play newbie in this scenario. And to be honest, I've not been involved in a public listing either. So half these questions are from me directly. (laughs) When you say unlocking wealth, so to unlock the wealth once your friend listed, or in your case, if that's an easier example, do you literally need to sell those shares to release that capital or do you have some other options no i mean in the main you you will sell your own shares so let's just say you have a business that's worth you know the market's valued at 10 million pounds pre-raising new money then you know you may say well look i want to raise three million of new money and that is what's called new money is the money that goes into the business and then there's another term that's called old money and that is effectively existing shareholders selling down so you typically, you know, you might raise, let's say, 5 million, of which 2 million would be old, i.e., in other words, the founders selling some shares, and 3 million would be new money. So you're getting money in to grow your business whilst also exiting some of your own shares and still staying in control. And is there a, a limit on what's acceptable in that scenario? I could imagine if you're going public and wanting to take out as much capital as you can as the founder, investors coming in may not look too kindly on that. Yeah, and that depends on size of the business. So if you've got a business that you're listing at, let's say, you know, hundreds of millions of pounds, then, you know, you taking off, you know, tens of millions is going to be fine. So, you know, investors will always look for founders to be wedded to the business. And they will always look for you to to have a, a lot of skin in the game. But selling, you know, five, 10% of your stock 
is acceptable. But I think if you start selling more than that, then the, the question marks is, you know, do you actually believe in what you're trying to do? And, you know, I'm not prepared to give you my growth capital cash for you to then sort of, you know, just to put in your own pockets. You know, there's always a fine line to be tread here. And, and I think, you know, you've just got to be careful of that. But I think, you know, if you play it carefully and you've got good advisors, then, you know, you can actually do both. Okay, great. And what's the indicators you look for now? Obviously, like we mentioned at the top of the show, you were involved with Digital Box, and the primary goal there was to list and then acquire companies, which is how we met. So at what point, what are the indicators or at what point, if you're on trend, like you mentioned, do you actually go to the public market? Do you need a certain amount of revenue? Is it business plan? How do you, how do you, balance those two things and know when is a good time to list? You know, you don't necessarily need to be profitable. You know, the business that I'm chief exec of, Emotion, isn't profitable. We're investing heavily in the VR space, but, you know, we genuinely believe that that will have a hockey stick. I think when you refer to Digital Box and, and indeed how we actually met, Digital Box is really about a buy and build strategy. So what we needed in that business, we have something with Entertainment Daily that is very successful. We have something that's profitable. When we listed, we bought another business called The Daily Mash, which is a satirical sort of website predominantly based in the UK. But what it's given us the ability to do is to actually use a combination of A, cash that we raised through the listing and B, paper. So when we go and see people, we can sort of say, look, we'll give you, you know, we'll give you 50% cash, we'll give you 50% paper. And they know that that paper at some stage is tradable. So it means we can do deals. It means we can also lock people in to our journey. So if people believe in what we're trying to do, then hopefully the paper will have an increased value in years to come. So when we did the deal with the Daily Mash, we gave them, I think we gave them 70% in cash and we gave them 30% in paper. So it means they, you know, are sat on our side of the fence with that paper. It means that they're wedded to that. We locked the paper up for a year or so. So it means they can't sell it. So they've got to work hard in order to enhance the value of that paper. And done right, you know, it can really help grow the business. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess that's similar to, well, different than using, say, commercial debt on the acquisition side, you can use that leverage of the paper being available to get a more creative deal structure and have less cash down today. And then also have partners to help you grow certain things within the business to make the whole business stronger. That makes a lot of sense. Are you still using leverage as as far as commercial debt when doing acquisitions or is it all cash and then paper, like you mentioned? I mean, in all the businesses that we're involved in, we don't, we have no debt. And debt's very challenging. And unless you're buying a traditional type business, then often it can be quite hard to put debt in. Now, you know, against profits and things, people will give you some debt. I think where possible and where you're, you've got certainty, then debt's a very good tool. But if, if things don't go quite as planned, then in the public markets, you know, you can end up in what's called a debt spiral where, you know, you haven't got the money to pay out or to pay for the debt. The company isn't making the money that it was once making. And therefore, you have to go and try and raise money at a different value. And that can be quite hard. So I think, you know, when you're doing deals in the public markets, things to avoid sort of things like open-ended earnouts, because you can do an open-ended earnout where you promise to give shares to pay for the earnout. But then if your share price falls for whatever reason, maybe your core business isn't doing as well, that person could end up owning all of your business because you're in this death spiral. 
So I think you've just got to be a bit careful about how you structure deals and how you use paper. You're better off paying on the nose with that. And strong advice is trying to avoid lengthy earnouts in the public market scenario. Hmm, that's interesting. And what are some of the mechanisms you can use? Obviously, people need advisors to do this, but just in general terms, what are the mechanisms you like to use to cover the downside in a scenario like that? Well, I think you've, you know, proper due diligence is really, really important. And you know, if you can get somebody that's also got skin in the game with you, in other words, giving them public listing paper, then you know their interests are aligned with your interests. So you know, if you've got somebody that you're acquiring then, you know, you can look at that. I often think, you know, and one of the things we looked at, Corin, when we started talking was, you know, areas that are potentially undervalued. And, you know, how can you take some of those products that are, you know, or sectors that are undervalued that you think, actually, if you if you spin them in a slightly different way, have got a different valuation. It's often, you know, if you're in different sectors, then, then they have different multiples, you know, if you get into a tech sector, then that's probably got a 10, 20 times earnings multiple. But if you're in a Amazon sellers area, then that's probably got a you know two to three times multiple. And it's just how do you sort of perceive those and how do you maybe move things around to create slightly different businesses that have got a slightly different sort of outward looking skew? Mm, absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of multiple arbitrage speak in our space, especially in the e-commerce, Amazon branded product space. Um, Very few people are looking at going public, though. I've spoken to a couple, but you were one of the first, actually, that really we started having these conversations. So let's hold that there for a minute. We'll loop back to that. I'd really like to talk about AIM, the alternative investment markets on the London Stock Exchange, which is what you used for Digitalbox to go public. So how did you choose that market? And also, could you explain what that is just a little bit? Yeah, I mean, AIM is the junior market of the London Stock Exchange, and it is a lot less onerous than the, the full market. On the full market, you have to do sort of quarterly reporting. The costs of being on the full market, penal, are probably be, you know, a few hundred thousand pounds a year, whereas being on the junior market, it's tens of thousands of pounds a year, you know, maybe sort of 60, 70,000 pounds a year. So the cost benefit is greater. I think there are a lot of funds that are available that you can access now on the junior market. And there are a lot of companies that are big, big companies, you know, multi-billion pound companies. Boohoo is one that I spoke about earlier. That's an AIM-listed company. So there are a lot of benefits to AIM. It's less onerous in terms of the regulatory environment, which I think is important. And I think it gives you the flexibility and it's perfect for growth companies. So I think it's good. And I think, you know, probably in terms of junior markets, I think the UK leads the field in that area. Hmm, Absolutely. And what's the process like to become listed on AIM? Is there, what sort of diligence do you need to provide and all that sort of stuff to get going? And what sort of advisors would you recommend people engage if they're looking at going into a secondary market? Yeah, I mean, you need to find a what's called a nominated advisor. I mean, that's the first port of call. So they will then kick the tires on your business and then they will they will ascertain whether that business has got the merits to be a listed entity, whether that be on the full market or on, on AIM. But if you just stay with AIM, I think that's probably the easiest route. And then you then need brokers. Some nominated advisors have brokers as well. And the broker's job is to go and raise you the cash to help get you in front of fund managers and to actually help raise that money. And then you'll normally have probably, you know, about two weeks worth of meetings. You'll do sort of circa eight to 10 meetings a day, and you'll tell potential investors about your business. 
And then what's called an analyst, which who sits on with a nominated advisor, will write reports on your business. And they will give a view as to what they think the outlook is for your business and what their projections are. You know, as the company, you're not allowed to give projections. So, so what you do is you give guidance to your nominated advisor, who then as an analyst, who then gives his forecasts on what he thinks the business can do and can achieve. And then, you, as I said, you sit down with all this information, you sit down in front of uh, potential investors. You'll normally have an hour's meeting. In reality, that's about 40 minutes talking about your business. And you've got to get a real elevator pitch. You've got to engage the people, not only in you and your business, but everything else around it, the sector, et cetera, et cetera. And then they'll decide very quickly whether they want to, to invest. And how long is that process typically with the investor groups? Do they make their decisions on the spot? Do they go back to their board in this scenario? I mean, most of these guys are running their own or running people's monies, but they can all make their own decisions. So normally when you see somebody, they'll have done their diligence in the background. So they'll have read the analyst report. Some will want to do a little bit more work, but normally from beginning to end, from start of the roadshow to the end is about a two-week process. Wow, that's really fast. Okay, excellent. And the listing process. So doing all the work and getting everything done. You know, if you really want to speed it up, you can probably do it in 12 weeks. Wow, that's amazing. (laughs) Thanks for the explanation on that. I I find that really eye-opening as to unlocking alternative forms of capital, which is what all this is about. Yeah. So I've noticed with Digital Box specifically, early on when we were talking, there was, as you mentioned, there's a management team in place on the business now and you're on to the next business. So how do you view getting a business to a point where a management team can come in and where do you source that management team and CEOs to run with your vision and then move on to the next thing? Well, I mean, if we just take Digital Box as a prime example, so we brought on a guy called James Carter, really as a sort of commercial director and to work with me. Then we brought in a guy called Jim Douglas as the operations director. And both of them worked very closely with me for about 12 months. And I sort of set the direction of travel that we were going in. And it became very clear then, having got the business into flow, that what we needed, and, and I think this is very important for entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs are great at starting businesses. They're not necessarily the best people to run businesses. And I think all entrepreneurs need to remember that. And it's about taking good to great, not bad to good. Yes. It's, I think once a business is in flow, then it's very important to try and look for a management team to take over and to almost take a step back as the entrepreneur. Because entrepreneurs are, are notoriously bad at letting the status quo just happen. They always want to tinker and try and do the next thing. And it, more often than not, they'll end up ruining the business by doing that. Somebody once said to me that there are, there's lots of people that run businesses very well. There's very few entrepreneurs. So what you've got to do is take your bit of entrepreneurs to greatness and then find somebody of which there are plenty to actually run it. So what we've got in James is somebody who's very good at running a business. He was at a business called EMAP PLC, which was a huge publishing company for many years. He ran a title and a business called FHM, which was a sort of guy's magazine. And, you know, he ran it and took it to a stage where it was delivering 11 million pounds of profit per annum. So he's more than capable of doing this. And our strategy really now is about buying and building. It's about buying. Our general belief was, and my direction of travel, was that more and more magazines are going to go online, that print is going to start falling off, that you're going to want instant gratification, whether that be through Facebook or Instagram or other forms of social media, that 
e-commerce is going to become much more about the mobile phone and mobile phone and you're going to sort of click and buy and a lot of those things will be interlinked with to what you're actually reading so if you're reading i don't know let's say a mountain bike magazine then if you see something that you want within an article then you just want to be able to click and buy it and you want to be able to do all of that potentially using amazon as the delivery mechanism from this for this single ecosystem and this single world of your mobile phone and that's a general belief of that business and now we've got capital and paper we can actually go on that buy and build strategy yeah absolutely that that makes a ton of sense i've been at a number of e-commerce conferences in the past couple months and one thing that i noticed as a trend was not from any of the speakers mind you but um from people i was talking to at the events were all saying i seem to be buying more off instagram now (laughs) because of the ads being direct to the product so it makes a ton of sense if you're reading an article if there's some sort of comparison you just want it and that's the great thing about the trend in consumer right now is if you want it you want it now and you want it to be seamless so i think that makes a ton of sense we have a customer a client right now that's in the travel men's fashion brand and they actually paid for to be promoted in gq in the uk actually and i was thinking this myself if i saw this in the magazine i'd want to click on it straight away and that's one of the things with traditional paper magazines is you can't click the paper (laughs) but in the digital space it's a no-brainer so i think that's a really good uh, a smart strategy so what type of companies are you looking to acquire now are you looking for more media properties are you looking for physical product companies in between what's the uh, mandate I think it's a combination of the two things. I mean, look, our firm belief is and always has been is that the mobile is going to become the number one sort of communication tool. And it's not only that, it's going to become the number one buying tool. And the more everything is sort of integrated now into your habits and the more your credit cards are integrated into that phone, then I think the more immediacy and simplicity is going to happen. So whether it be mountain biking or whether it be a leisure product or whatever, I think there's a way of trying to extend these things. And when we started speaking, Corin, you know, one of the things that I was interested in is how do we take, you know, I don't know, a home decor sort of Amazon product and how do we then extend that to sort of offer, start offering magazine solutions and start offering some editorial around what is a buying site. So how do we take the buying site and extend that into a magazine as opposed to how do we take a magazine and extend it into a buying product? And I think that's where I'm really interested. And I think that's where the team's interested in. You know, what can we acquire that allows us that elasticity to take something that is purely a pull mechanism that becomes a sort of push-pull relationship? Oh, great. I think that's a really big advantage that you have there, having the being able to build out the media that's interesting to a specific target market. A lot of the clients that we deal with that are Amazon specific really struggle with that. They figure out the product game, how to create better products, better mousetraps, and create some great brands around this. But outside of Amazon, they really struggle because they don't have that skill set. So I think that could be a really interesting play coming in. Like you said, mention the multiples being lower. And then once you build out these content sites, media sites around that topic, that will lead to more sales and make the business actually more robust, even the business on its own, let alone being as part of the umbrella, which is digital box. I like that strategy. Yeah, you know, and I would encourage, you know, any of your listeners to really you know, think about that. And if you've got something that, you know, is a great selling site, then that, you know, has got sort of 
you know, good editorial sort of connotations, then I think, you know, we can help really sort of merge that into sort of something that's totally different. And certainly Instagram is something that is is important to us. So anybody who's selling a lot of stuff on Instagram, we're, we're very keen to talk to, because I think that's going to be a growing area. And one of the things we, you know, we want to sort of try and dilute is our complete reliance on Facebook. You know, at the moment, probably, you know, 80, 90% of our business comes via Facebook. And, you know, whilst that's good, it's also bad that I think any business, you don't want to be reliant on any single source more than sort of 20, 25% of your total revenues. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what a lot of the larger investors, strategic investors and larger financial investors, private equity groups, that's what they're looking for. They're looking for diversification baked in, diversified revenue sources, having that direct to consumer focus and actually controlling the customer, which is one downside of Amazon. You don't actually have that direct contact with the customer necessarily. So that's a good strategy. And I think that's one, of the reasons, that's one of the reasons the valuations are low on Amazon stuff, because everybody's terrified that Amazon at some point is going to just sort of come and eat your lunch. Now, whether they will or won't, I think if it becomes part of a larger conglomerate where you're using Amazon as a delivery method, then, you know, I'm not totally convinced that Amazon's going to want to sort of eat everybody's lunch in this sort of huge long tail of a business. Absolutely. Yeah, I think there's uh, quite a bit of fear around the space. Some of it is founded, um, but yeah, it, there's few buyers that are really comfortable with the space. And I think being on the leading edge there and having access to capital instead of debt via the public raise that you've done gives you more options because you're bringing cash to the table. It gives you uh, more longevity and you can weather some of those storms potentially as well, which is great. And what we're actually seeing is some companies getting to quite large size, middle market, lower middle market size businesses, 10, 20 million plus in revenue that have one single revenue channel. And yeah, I think there's quite a few businesses that have proved a model. But once you can build in that extra audience and make the business more robust, there's there's a big win to be had there for sure. Yeah, and I think that that's where, you know, we would like to do sort of business with you, know, you and, and your listeners really is, is to sort of just try and join those dots together. So Instagram, big, big tick in the box for us. You know, we're not against Amazon. We think that, that it's right. What we want to see is something that we can then extend some editorial values into that offering. Mm, absolutely. So how's the best way for people to get in touch if they do have an Instagram-based business or Amazon-based business and they'd like to get in touch with your team at DigitalBox? Yeah, look, I think, you know, probably the best way is either through yourself as brokers, you know, you know what, what we want and you've got a very clear mandate, you know, or, you know, people can contact us directly. But I think, you know, in the first instance, what will probably help is for it to go through you. And then, you know, you can sort of vet some of the stuff because, the trouble is in this business, you know, you've got to sort of kiss a lot of frogs to get to the right person. Absolutely. That's my whole day <laughs> is kissing a lot of frogs. <laughs> and, yes, um, I mean, you know, we'd rather you guys did it and then, you know, came to us with the right products, which will allow us to make quicker decisions, allow us to move, you know, much more rapidly. Sure, absolutely. Well, yeah, if anyone listening is interested in exploring these opportunities further, please reach out and we'll definitely vet those for you and bring the good ones over. Right. So awesome. Well, Martin, this has been really a great episode as far as shifting mindset to away from what everyone's talking about. So I really appreciate that. Is there any 
advice you would give to someone or not specific advice you've done the advice piece is there anything you would do different if you were to go list another company via aim what would you do differently than say the most recent digital box listing no i think it's all about timing you know and the digital box listing you know the timing wasn't perfect the markets were very very difficult and as a consequence you know it's you've got to sort of work out how best to raise the money. So timing is everything. And, it, and you know, there's a great saying in the public market, so if the ducks are quacking, then that you should feed them. In other words, that if you've got a market that is very buoyant, then it, that's a great time to list your business. So, you know, just look for all the signs, look at what's going on around you, look at that you've got a, um, you're in the right sector, make sure that the story is very, very simple to tell. And I think if you can do all of that, then, you know, you certainly improve your chances of success. Awesome. Well, that sounds like some solid advice there, Martin. And again, thanks for coming on the show. And we'll link up to Digital Box and anything else you'd like to share with our listeners on the show notes about this episode. But thanks so much for jumping on the call. No, thanks for having me. Awesome. Thank you for listening to another episode of Truth About Exits. Now, whenever you're ready, here are three ways I can help you. If your company is doing between 10 to 50 million plus in revenue and you want help to plan your perfect exit to achieve the highest value and best deal terms possible, or if you'd like advice on acquiring other companies to continue to grow your company, we can help. Go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash consult. There you'll see a simple form to tell us a little bit more about you, your company and your goals. And my team and I will take it from there. So go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash consult. The second way I can help is become a guest on our show. If you've had a successful exit, you want to share your story, or if you're actively acquiring other businesses and want to share your criteria with our audience, go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash guest. Let's connect and I'd love to talk to you. The third way I can help you is one of my favorite things in the entire world is sharing the truth about exit stories with other entrepreneurs by speaking at events all over the world. So far, I've had the privilege of speaking at events in the US, Canada, UK, Spain, Germany, Ukraine, Czech Republic, over in Asia, China, Hong Kong, Thailand, and even Australia. If you'd like me to speak at your next event, go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash speaker and tell me a little bit more about your event and we'll go from there. Thanks for listening and I'll see you on the next episode.